everyone. This is Afio Now, and I'm Jim Hughes. And today I have another great guest to talk to you about um, some wonderful stories from our U.S. intelligence community. This is an individual who should not be a stranger to any of you who come from the high-tech part of the community, particularly if you're a former rocket scientist. Um, this gentleman um, has been a long-term AFIO uh, board member. Uh, he was the president and CEO of MITRE Corporation for a number of years. But most important for today, he was an assistant secretary um, of the Air Force for Space and uh, the director of NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office. Please welcome Mr. Marty Fago. Welcome, Marty. Jim, thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, let me start my story back a little bit. I uh, graduated in engineering, served briefly at MITRE Corporation, uh, went to CIA in the um, in the early 70s where I joined the NRO program and was a, was a design engineer, one of the great experiences of my life where I actually sort of put my hands on uh, satellites or at least uh, satellite design. Uh, I went from there in the late 70s to the then brand new House Intelligence Committee and served as their staff overseer for uh, satellite and other technical programs for a dozen years. Uh, one of our members was uh, Congressman Dick Cheney, who became Secretary of Defense in 1989 and invited me to come to the department as the director of NRO uh, and as Assistant Secretary for Space. So I'll talk primarily about my NRO experience. Um, at first, I thought, well, you know, I've never been an executive. But I quickly realized that the experiences I had were really good preparation. First of all, I'd been a design engineer. I actually understood this stuff, if you will. Uh, and I'd had a wide uh, engagement with the, the bureaucracy and sort of the politics of big programs in Washington through my intelligence, uh, through my intelligence committee experience. Well, one of the great events of that period that I served as director, which was 89 to 93, uh, the term of President George H.W. Bush, was the first Gulf War. The first Gulf War started in, uh, effectively started in late uh, 1990, and the major ground campaign was fought in early 91. Interesting thing about it from a space perspective is this is the first time the space systems had played a real role in tactical uh, battlefield. Previously, uh, most of the systems, particularly the photo systems, were film-based. All of them were, almost all of them were film-based. And collection was not rapid enough to mean anything to tactical war. It meant a lot to strategic war, but nothing to tactical war. That had all changed by 1991. And we were able to deliver all kinds of uh, overhead reconnaissance into command trailers or division commanders on the move. And by the way, uh, those command trailers were a tribute to the fact that, that the Army invested $100 million a year from 1980, so over a billion dollars by the time of the first Gulf War, to prepare the Army to actually use overhead reconnaissance and other space systems in real time in actual warfare. So that's what happened during the 
first uh, Gulf War. Um, I remember one particular event where uh, the J2 in uh, in theater went out of channel because channel to get coverage was to go through CENTCOM to DIA who had the tasking control. But this officer called me directly and asked me if we would do some collection that was not normally available uh, at the secret level uh, to the troops. And he said, I, I know I'm asking you to violate policy, which is why I'm not going through the chain. And he explained why, which was uh, an, an imminent uh, military need, troops and contact is his name. And I said, yes, of course, we'll, we'll do it. And I asked the guys to do it, and they said, well, you know, you could get fired. And you know, what are you going to do about that? And I said, well, don't worry about that. Uh, I'll tell the DCI tomorrow we were doing it, you know, that day. So we did it. The next day I called uh, Judge Webster, with whom I had a great relationship with a man I dearly love. And I told him what I had done. And I said, I realized that maybe you're going to fire me. And he said, no, no, I'm thinking about what award I can give you. Uh, two, two views from after the war. First, the Russians did a, did a study of why had the American victory occurred so quickly and with so few casualties. Now, we have to keep in mind a part of this was, wasn't a very competent adversary, and they had essentially no air capability. But the Russian conclusion was the two biggest ingredients were real-time intelligence, a good part of which was overhead, and precision-guided munitions, which in part were satellite-based because of the importance of uh, GPS in getting aircraft to, to the proper launch position. We did not have GPS-guided uh, smart munitions during the first Gulf War. They came a, a little bit later. But there, those were their two conclusions, and I would argue are a key reason why the uh, Russians and the Chinese have moved to develop uh, anti-satellite capabilities uh, for the next conflict, if it should uh, involve them. The more personal experience I had following the war came from uh, Major General Paul Funk, who had been a commander of one of the uh, two divisions uh, that had made the Western Hook into Iraq uh, as part of the Seventh Corps. And he came and he said, uh, you know, it's widely believed that the Iraqis mounted no defense. He said, in fact, they did mount uh, defense, in particular, what they hoped would be uh, artillery traps where we would pass through some uh, restricted area of some kind uh, with a natural restriction that would hem us in, and that they could fire on us from essentially a safe distance with long-range artillery. He said the problem for them was I always knew from the satellite tape where they were and could move it accordingly. And he leaned forward and he said, Marty, I, I want you and your people to know that you were the difference between a couple of casualties and hundreds. He said, that's what, that's what satellite reconnaissance meant to me 
in the Gulf War. There were other sort of bureaucratic outcomes of, of the war. One was we were, I would say, laughingly, still a covert organization. We simply would not acknowledge ourselves. And by the way, that no longer uh, arose because of any concern that others would recognize what we were doing. We knew they were tracking most of our satellites. It was out of a fear of an adverse international reaction to open admission that we were doing satellite reconnaissance. Well, after the war, I realized we could no longer maintain this fiction. And in fact, in an effort to get declassification approved, I once said to Secretary Cheney, I said, um, we are classified, but we are not secret. There are people talking about us on the floor of the House and Senate. There are books written about us. Uh, I gave them the story of um, my older son, Jeff, who was just getting ready to graduate from the uh, Naval Academy. And uh, our security people at NRO decided, well, we should give him a defensive briefing because he's going to run into something in the field or somebody's going to say something to him. We need to get him ready. So they briefed him. And I asked him that night, I said, well, how was your briefing? And he said, oh, it's fine. Um, he said, but uh, Dad, uh, what was the secret? And I said, well, they told you about you know, satellite reconnaissance. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, everybody knows about that, Dad. What was the secret? Uh, I related that story to Secretary Cheney, and at that moment, he laughed and, and uh, relented. Uh, it turned out the president and uh, DCI Bob Gates were were quite willing to agree, and so declassification occurred in September of 1992. Um, to the chagrin of many inside the NRO who thought it was the wrong move to make, and interestingly enough, 28 years later, today, there are still people who will occasionally say to me, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Um, nonetheless, uh, I've been confident all those 28 years that it was the necessary and right thing to do. Uh, the other major change that occurred uh, in my time was the elimination of program offices based on uh, hosting organizations, specifically Air Force, CIA, and Navy programs A, B, and C, as we knew them in the NRO. Um, my view was that all of the satellites had become so, so wide in scope that they overlapped each other greatly, particularly the city satellites. And um, we had a vicious competition that, that for a while had been, which liar is the biggest liar because he wins? So I wanted to eliminate that, and I wanted to organize the NRO around uh, the ends, uh, imagery, SIGINT, uh, IR ends, and, and so forth. And I convinced Bob Gates that he should commission a study to examine whether this was, in fact, a good idea or not. And so he did. Um, this was the Thurman panel of about 1991 or 92. And they came to the same conclusion that, yes, you should organize you know, around 
around your inn. So we did that, and that transformation was occurring just as I left in 1993. And I'll have to say, one of the lessons I learned from that, watching the NRO in the subsequent years from a perch in MITRE, but uh, an organization that served the NRO, and also being asked frequently to serve on some kind of uh, review panel. Big wrenching organizational change is hard, and it's my belief that it took 10 years for the NRO to completely accomplish that transformation. Uh, one of the mistakes I made at the time was not to organize a permanent cadre of people. So we still were getting people, all of the people were coming from Air Force, uh, CIA, those two particularly, and to a lesser extent, Navy. And now that they didn't really own a chunk of it anymore, uh, they were much more reluctant to provide people that we asked for specifically or to leave them there for a long period of time has, has been historical. So I started ruminating about the need for a permanent cadre. Now, I'm long gone from the NRO, now talking in the early to mid 2000s, first decade of the 2000s. And at some point, uh, I got the uh, SSCI interested in the need to, to, uh, to have a permanent cadre of, I estimated, a thousand people, uh, and, you know, which would still allow plenty of opportunity for um, individual supporting organizations to have people there as well, which I thought was essential. At one point, uh, one of the SSCI staff called me and said, can you get a letter signed by as many former DNROs as you can signed in support of this idea of a permanent cadre. And I said, well, you know, when do you need it? He said, well, by tomorrow. So I said, well, I'll see what I can do. Uh, and to my surprise, I was able to get seven signed up within a couple of hours, send it over to them. I don't know what impact it had, but the Senate did push it forward, the House agreed, and uh, that permanent cadre was authorized. And uh, and the NRO has slowly been, been building it up. And I've been out there recently as a member of their advisory board, and uh, uh, there are permanent cadre, particularly in the technical team, which I thought was the most important, uh, that is building up. And so uh, despite all I did to wrench it, uh, the place uh, prospers today. Um, an interesting aspect of, I'll say, modern times, back around 2008 or so, probably just because what I was doing after my MITRE retirement in 2006, I was hearing around town, well, you know, satellite reconnaissance is not nearly as important anymore because we have other means, and the nature of war is different and not meaningful for uh, anti-terrorist activities. And what did I know? I thought, well, maybe that's true. But uh, various uh, government panels that I served on put me with a range of J2s throughout the combatant command. And I would say to each of them, gee, you know, I hear this, and uh, I'm not operating in the field. I don't know. Is this true? They would, to a person, spin to the ceiling and then proceed on a 20-minute diatribe, which could not be stopped or interrupted 
on why uh, various forms of satellite collection was as vital or perhaps more vital uh, than, it, than it had ever been. Uh, so the place still finds itself in great demand. It's in good hands, building a permanent cadre. Um, so it's a it's a delight to, to see it. So Jim, I'll stop at that point and invite any questions you might have. Marty, those are great stories. Thanks very much. Let me uh, change topics on you just slightly and um, tell a couple of quick stories from our common history. I first met Marty in, it was probably late 96 or early 97. I was working for another top um, US scientist by the name of Jim Gosler. And we went out to Mitre Corporation and Marty and a team briefed us on uh, SCADA systems. Well, I had spent most of my life in the foreign field and, and I wouldn't have known a SCADA if it walked across me. Um, and I really realized how little I knew about technical systems and about um, kind of the public-private partnership in the United States to uh, protect some of these systems. Fast forward a little bit, a couple of years later, it was my privilege to um, accompany then DCI, DDCI uh, Gordon out to Colorado, and we visited um, another former director of NRO, Keith Hall, who was the first president of Space Imaging. This was a commercial company that had just uh, launched its first satellite and was doing uh, unclassified uh, imaging from space. Um, that really blew me away, just the entire concept that something that had been a, a very compartmented, very secret, you know, government-only program had suddenly become um, part of the private sector. Marty, you want to comment a little bit on kind of the revolutionary change that was taking place, uh, particularly in the late 90s, where we were moving from uh, you know, very uh, classified government programs to suddenly uh, open uh, private programs? Sure. Um... Commercial space, commercial imaging from space was beginning in the early 90s. While I was still in office, uh, I, re I still remember saying to Bob Gates at, uh, at a DCI roundtable, which was all of the major program directors and, and Bob and his deputy. And I said, you know, Bob, commercial imagery is going to grow rapidly. And I suspect that 10 years from now, 10 years from 1992, uh, the world will be awash in commercial imagery. And we should try to create uh, an international mechanism like the uh, missile, te missile technology control regime so that we wouldn't step on each other as we got into various uh, localized conflicts. Bob looked at me and he thought for a minute and he said, you're crazy. Now, what he thought was crazy was, the, uh, of course, the, the rapid growth in the next 10 years. Well, it did happen. And in fact, I remember seeing uh, Bob at Texas A&M, where he had gone post-government, uh, attending a conference down there and spoke with Bob. He brought it up. He remembered, because it was a part of the program down there. He said, yeah, I, I still remember you told me we'd be a Washington, and, and we are. So. 
Um, in fact, it became big enough that, as I recall, around 2003 were the first large government contracts to buy commercial imagery for uh, operational purposes, um, mostly for what people call basic intelligence, where are all of the buildings and air, airfields and, and so on. It's a big job because you want to cover much of the world every three years. That's a lot of imagery and remember clouds intervene and so you can't just can't just go sweep it up any given day. Um, so I retired from MITRE in 2006 and among other things joined the board of directors of GOI, which was then one of the major uh, providers of commercial imagery and we had a contract for $150 million or so for imagery and our big competitor Digital Globe at a similar contract. The government was spending on the order of $300 million a year by 2005 or six and onward um, for commercial imagery. And today, Digital Globe is the surviving company. GOI was absorbed by Digital Globe in 2011. And today, Digital Globe has a contract for about $350 million a year of uh, imagery. And other offers uh, are starting to get in as well and have small contracts. Uh, Black Sky, Planet, uh, Hawkeye 360, uh, there are others. So it, it's been an explosion. Now, I, I think it's like the, the bowling alley problem, right? If you have too many bowling alleys, none of them have enough business to survive. Um, this is probably happening to some degree in a commercial imagery business. What many of the companies are realizing, and we realized this at Digital Global Ballet was on, on their board subsequent to the GOI merger. It's not about selling picture elements, not about selling the photos. It's about solving problems with imagery and selling the solutions. Um, so, for example, uh, NGA buys a lot of analytical services from Digital Globe and others, including other companies that don't collect imagery but, but do process it. And I recall um, one of our customers in the Middle East at some point saying, don't send us the images anymore because we don't really have anybody who can analyze. Just send us the analytical product that you do for us, uh, which was essentially, you know, a short a short document every couple of months, um, because they were essentially using the imagery as an early warning network for somebody getting ready to attacking. Other than that, I don't much care. Although there were some very practical applications, like watching the health of uh, long distance power lines, uh, and particularly oil pipeline in an area, especially in Africa, where theft is a constant issue. Um, and, I, and Planet, which started off a small number, with a large number of very small satellites, and I think now numbers between two and 300 satellites, both recover the Earth every day. And the, the significance of that for all kinds of applications 
uh, military, other government, commercial, uh, even personal, uh, is just uh, is just enormous. And so all of this has grown up in a little less than 30 years. Marty, another um, story to which I know you will resonate. After I uh, retired from the government, I worked in the private sector for a number of years. And I recall in about 2005 or 2006, attending a classified uh, conference out at that great uh, conferencing center at NRO. And there was a brash young man by the name of Elon Musk <laughs> who got up in front of an audience of maybe five or 600 uh, senior government employees and defense contractors and announced that he had formed a company called SpaceX and he was going to start launching satellites into space. Um, tell me what kind of impact that would have had on that audience at that time. Uh, I'm sure they all sat there saying, he's crazy. And in fact, uh, I met Elon and got to know him slightly a few years later when I was serving on the board of the uh, Space Foundation, a nonprofit space advocacy group, Colorado Springs, which among other things has a three-day annual symposium uh, in Colorado Springs, which everybody in the business attends. And I remember Elon being asked at one point, so this was now probably five years after your experience, they had actually flown a few uh, launch vehicles. Their success rate at that point was not very good. And so somebody said, Elon, why did you decide to get into this business? And he said, well, it's a good way to turn a large fortune into a small one. And in fact, I don't think anybody in the general public knows, I don't know how much he invested uh, and whether he has ever made any money even to today uh, on his investment. But he certainly has produced a very viable business. And in fact, among other things, just won a major uh, next space uh, system launch contract from the, uh, from the Air Force. And I would say, to the surprise of no one. Marty, you're a great American and you have great stories to tell. Um, we thank you for your service, both to AFIO and the nation. And we look forward to having you come back again sometime very soon. Great, thanks very much, Jim, I enjoyed it.